After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi, everybody. It's Mind Rolling with Raghu Marcus and David Silver. And this is an episode uh, that's going to include uh, someone who is part of our low-hanging fruit club. And his name is Ramdev, Dale Borglum. And Ramdev and I were in India together way back when, so that's his qualification for the low-hanging fruit club. Welcome, Ramdev. Thank you for having me. And um, just so you know what the low-hanging fruit club is, is uh, it's about uh, a letter that we got from a listener saying, you guys have all these people on that, you know, you've been friends with for the last decades. Why don't you reach out there and get Deepak Chopra or somebody instead of this low-hanging fruit stuff? And <laughs> we said, well, we're pretty proud of our low-hanging fruit. And... Uh, so, uh, you know, it's all of us, right? And Ramdas and Krishnadas and uh, Sharon and Jack and, and now you. Uh, and Ramdev is, uh, has been doing extraordinary work for decades. And uh, some of this work uh, started uh, in conjunction with Ramdas, actually, around death and dying and Stephen Levine. And we're going to get that to, uh, get to that in a second, but we want to uh, encourage everybody uh, that's been uh, listening to this podcast, Mind Rolling, and been tuning into the MindPod Network to continue the support that we've been getting. We had this fantastic suggestion that David came up with, which was... <laughs> really? I came up with something? Okay. Yeah, it was brilliant. If everybody just gave, or as many people as could, just this small, well, we're saying $9 a month because that gets into the 108 sacred number. But even $3 is good. $6 is good. If enough people did that, then the, the podcast network would be able to function with the kind of help that we're getting now and doing the kinds of things that we are in the midst of doing, creating online courses. We got our app, HeartMind app, that is uh, about halfway through in production, and uh, we're going to see that in a, in a month or so. So uh, this is, and you've been doing it. Everybody out there, you've been doing it. You have been uh, getting every week uh, quite a few people are p uh, pledging. It's like PBS, I guess, pledging. Uh, uh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, even $20 a month. <clears throat> and since we have uh, mucho thousands of people, 
uh, listening to this uh, podcast, uh, it's really going to help if more of you do this. So please remember us. I know that there's other podcasts. These are free podcasts. Everybody who listens to podcasts knows that. And the only way they get supported is either directly through these donations or through uh, Amazon links, which you can find on our site as well. Do you have anything else to say about that, David, since this was your brilliant idea? Uh, no, I think that it, you know whatever you can afford is great. And if you can't afford anything, it's still good. Stay with us. Or maybe suggest it to uh, more wealthy friends of yours. But uh, keep on listening. And uh, we're very, very grateful in this time of so many things that we're asked to help. Legitimate, amazingly legitimate things. Uh, we're very grateful if you if you do supply that support. And uh, thank you. And, uh, and by the way, we also want to hear from you. And we do hear from lots of you. And we want to hear from more of you. And in this case... Um, this gentleman that we're going to be uh, talking to today, Ram Dev, Dale, uh, what should we call you? I mean, I only know you as Ram Dev. And I call me Ram Dave. Okay. So, but people out there, his professional name is Dale Borglum, and it's livingdying.org. We're going to talk more about that later, but you'll be able to communicate. And I mean, he's going to be talking about some very weighty things and some light things. Uh, and uh, please feel free to communicate, and we'll hook you up with him. Um, now, I'm going to say one other thing that's a bit of a... It's going to lead into something that Ramdev and, and Dave and I are going to be able to talk about, but we have, uh, and, and this is my other hat on, for the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org, we are coming out with a book uh, that's going to be released through Harper One on November 10th. And we just yesterday announced that fact. And we are asking people to uh, pre-order this book. If you go to ramdas.org slash love everyone, uh, you'll see all of the uh, different kinds of things from different people uh, about the book and little quotations. We have a a fun little video, which David tried to maneuver and just told me before we got on the podcast and said it was uh, near impossible. But uh, if you stick with it, there's some great videos. There's one of Ramdev. Ramdev, you don't even know this. No, uh, I don't. I've yeah, never seen it. Yeah, well, you, you'll, you'll go up there and take a look yourself. Um, but uh, please do, everyone, if you can get a chance, please go. And uh, when these pre-orders come in, then uh, more books will be made available through Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and all the bookstores and worldwide. So uh, it's important that we get enough pre-orders uh, so that uh, the uh, booksellers will order more and make more available, which means it'll be way more visible. And it's a beautiful book about all of our experiences uh, meeting Ramdas, some not meeting Ramdas, and going to India and meeting, uh, ultimately meeting Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, who you've heard a lot about on this podcast, of course. And I'm going to just segue here. David, let me tell you the moment that I met Ramdev, okay? Yeah. Ramdev, you won't even remember this. I was at the... Swami Muktananda's ashram in Ganesh Puri, waiting to see Maharaji. He was not to be found, and Ra I was writing Ramdas back and forth. And uh, Ramdas said, "Well, I'm going to a meditation course because I, we can't find him. We don't know where he is, so I don't know what to tell you." 
but I am going to uh, Swami Muktananda's ashram uh, such and such date. And in fact, they're doing an installation of his guru, Swami Nichananda, of a, of a statue. In, it's going to be installed in the ashram. I'm going to be there. It's a big celebration. Why don't you meet me there? I said, great. And he said, we'll see what happens. So I get there. And uh, one, the, many events happened at this thing. <laughs> okay. But one of them was, when they actually did the ceremony, there was two guys with whisks, these things, that whisks that you... Horsehair brooms. Horsehair brooms that you wave up and down uh, to or you keep the flies off the morty, something like that. Uh, and there was two gentlemen who were on either side of the entrance, okay? One of them was Ramdev, and both of them looked like they had just been released from Auschwitz. I had never seen anybody who was complete skin and bones. I mean, they were like sadhus, I could tell, and it looked like they had been on a fast for about 90 days. I was horrified. I thought, is this what Muktananda is allowing to happen? He's starving these people? It was like I was he was encouraging it. He said, "You're having the chance to be with the Satguru. Don't waste your energy digesting food. Eat only enough to stay alive so you can find God." <laughs> really, <laughs> Jesus! Oh, yeah. well, I was scared you. for you. Anyhow, segue. Ramdas gives me a note to go see Maharaji, and I. Uh, not long after, Ramdev and this other gentleman uh, named Vishu. Uh, arrive at Kenshi, looking the same way, and within probably no more than two weeks after what Maharaji... Maharaji's philosophy was the opposite of what Muktananda said. It was to fatten us up <laughs> as quickly as possible with these huge mounds of puris and potatoes and so on and so forth. So he, you, were, you looked in fine shape within a couple of weeks, I think, right? You remember all that? Yeah, can I tell you a short story about that? Absolutely. Well, when I was with uh, Muktananda, I got malaria. And then I left, finally realizing that I did look like I had just escaped from a concentration camp and made my way up to Nadital, where I came to the Evelyn Hotel, and there was Danny Goldman out on the veranda eating white bread toast and getting a suntan and drinking tea and reading a novel. And I thought, I've just almost killed myself <laughs> trying to find God. And what, what are these people doing? They're not doing the right thing. They're just goofing around. But anyway, uh, somebody told me that there was a very good homeopath who could cure my malaria. So I went to the homeopath and he said, I need you to take a blood test so we find out what kind of malaria you have so I can cure it. I went to the hospital, they, they did the blood test, and they said, well, here's what kind of malaria you have, but on top of that, you've got diabetes. And you can't eat anything starchy, greasy, <laughs> sugary, or uh, what was the other sweet. thing? Starchy, greasy, sweet. So uh, I went to Maharaji's the next day, and out came a whole big uh, banana plate full of... Uh, <laughs> Halva, which is uh, cream of wheat in, in butter and sugar and fried puris and really <laughs> spicy potatoes. All the things that I'm not supposed to eat. 
And I look over at Maharaj, and he's across the courtyard twinkling at me. So I'm thinking, well, the doctor said I shouldn't eat any of this stuff, but Maharaj, he gave it to me. So I ate two portions, and I felt really awful. And every day I would come and I would eat. I would, at that point, I weighed about 115 pounds. Oh, I, I would eat double portions. And then finally, the homeopath said, we need another blood test. So I went back to the hospital. They did a blood test, and the doctor said, I can't understand it. Your diabetes is completely gone. This can't have happened. I said, thank you very much. I think I know what's going on here. Goodbye. <laughs> Wow, that is great. Uh, what a great story. Yeah. Oh, my. Um, now, there is one story in Love Everyone. And, and by the way, folks listening out there, all of this story that Ram, I don't know if this story Ram just told is in the book, but uh, there are others of his stories and all of us with these kinds of stories uh, that give you a real picture of, of who Maharaji is and, and what it was like for us to be there and what we brought back from, from that time. But there is one story uh, that I'd love for you to tell that is in the book, I believe. And it's the story of you bringing a present to Maharaji, a picture. Uh, Can you tell that story? story. Okay, well, uh, in the beginning there of being with Maharaji, at least me, and I think everybody was kind of uncertain who we are in relationship to this great being, and I felt a bit inadequate. So when I would bring him prasad, when I would bring him some uh, sweets or some fruit or something, the, the attitude with which I would bring it would be, uh, here I am, this poor, unworthy being. Please accept this. I know I don't deserve it. I'm just a piece of crap, but I love you, and maybe you'll uh, take it from me and accept it and, and shower some love on me. Growing up as a Lutheran, I mean, you say these things, I'm a poor sinner, I'm unworthy, you know, and that was really inside of me. So uh, I had just gotten a PhD in mathematics from Stanford. I don't know if you can imagine what that had done to my mind. <laughs> so for, for 10 years, I was at Berkeley and then Stanford studying higher mathematics, and my mind was really, oh, very tight. So I asked Maharaji, could I go study Buddhism with Goenka and Munindra. And he said, if you wish. He didn't really seem too enthused about it, but I figured I really needed to do something to this crazy mind of mine. So I did go to Bodh Gaya, and for 40 straight days I meditated and had some remarkable experiences. So much so that the world went into slow motion at times, that I could see the consciousness in leaves and things like that, and it was really incredible. So. I figure now I'm going to come back to Maharaji. Now I'll be able to really uh, not only be there with the love, but my mind will be calm and I'll really be able to accept what's going on in a whole new way. So I got back there and there's a whole bunch of people who had come from these retreats. And when I came in the room with Maharaji, I could see what was going on. There he was. There was form and shape and movement, but I didn't feel anything that juiciness, that people were laughing, people were crying with joy, and I was just in the back row being a Buddhist, and I was like kind of disappointed with all of this. Uh, in retrospect, it might have been a higher kind of love, like beyond emotion and empty quality of heart. But at the time, I felt like, wait, something's really missing here. So I came home at night and I, I prayed, please, Maharaji, open my heart, open my heart. And for three straight days, I would go to the 
Darshan, all these people were there laughing and crying and touching his feet. And I was just feeling very empty and Buddhist-like in the back row. So finally I decided I've got to do something about this. And all this was happening in Allahabad Adada's house, where the Sangam is, where they have the Kumbh Mela every 12 years. Even though it wasn't the astrologically auspicious time to go to the Sangam, which is where the Ganga River, the Yumna River, and another river, the Saraswati on the astral plane all come together, this very auspicious place, I thought, I will go there and I will uh, pray and immerse myself in the river and maybe something will happen. So I go to the Sangam, which is a huge floodplain, and because it's the wrong time of the year, there's nobody there. I mean, you can look miles in each direction and you could see maybe just a few people. So I take in this bicycle rickshaw way outside of town. I told the guy to stay there because if he left, I would have been stranded for God knows how long. I go into the river, I pray, and I come out, and it had happened. My heart was like wide open. My mind was clear. Everything was just like shining with consciousness. And I'm so so excited now to get back to Maharaji. So we're, I hop in the rickshaw. I said, Fort Church Lane, Dada's house, let's go. And we're going. And partway back, I realized I don't have any prasad, and we're not going to be going by any bazaar on the way. I don't have anything to give Maharaji. And just at that moment, I looked to the side, and there was a guy selling Indian calendar prints on the side of the road. He had them attached to this ancient wall. The wall was much more beautiful than the calendar prints. They were these kind of like psychedelic, garishly colored pictures of Krishna and Shiva and things like that. And I looked at all the pictures, and they were all just kind of garish in a way that Westerners don't really like. And as I gave up, I looked down on the ground, and there was one picture lying in the dust. And it was this beautiful picture of Ram embracing Hanuman from that story in the Ramayana where Hanuman has come to Ram and said, here's where Sita is, and Ram embraces Hanuman and says, you're the one for me. And uh, it was beautiful. So I picked it up, and we got to Dada's house. I was really late, and it was very crowded because so many people had followed us from the retreats there with uh, in, in Bodh Gaya. And I figured I won't be able to get up to the front, but that's okay. I don't care. I'm in this state. But somehow there was a path right up to the front. Maybe somebody important had just come. I don't know. So I came up to the front, and I had this picture. Now, as I said before, usually when I would give something to Maharaji, it was with this sense of I'm not worthy. But in this particular case, I kind of just like threw it at him. Like, here it is. Boom. Like, there was no sense of uh, there's me and there's you. It was just this pure act of here it is. And he picked up the picture and he started looking at it. And maybe I was just imagining this, but it felt to me like he remembered what it was like when Ram embraced Hanuman. And tears started coming down his cheeks. And everybody in the front row started crying. I mean, the, the feeling of love and devotion was so incredibly thick and rich. And he looked at the picture for a while, and then he jumped up. He gave the picture to Dada, shouted something, and went out through the door, slammed the door, and he didn't come out of the room for about an hour. Now, the story was that if you gave something to Maharaji, he would never keep it. He would give it to somebody else. You gave him a blanket, you gave him some fruit, he would immediately give it to somebody else. But about a month later, we all went from 
Allahabad to Brindavan, and there was that picture framed in the main Hanuman temple right behind Hanuman. Mm. And my feeling was that because it had been given so purely, he could accept it, mm. that I had not really given it, that it was just this pure act that uh, was unusual for me, at least. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. No giver, no receiver. Oh. Before the British came to India, there was no word for thank you. Really? Because it was felt that if I've got it and you need it, of course it goes from here to there. Whereas after the British came, then there's uh, the idea of duality, mm. a giver mm. and a receiver. Mm. Wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. I, I once again apologize to my countrymen. Um, <laughs> the problem is in England, people don't say thank you in any case most of the time. But anyway, <laughs> that's a great story. Oh, uh, lovely. You know. uh, and, and, you know, segue on to uh, the present. And um, Ramdev has a, a project called uh, Living Dying Project, uh, which just summarized from looking at the website, Healing Conscious Living, Conscious Dying, Spiritual Caregiving. And in my eyes, I'm getting on a bit now, uh, dying is, is right there. Of course, it's right there for everyone all the time. And, uh, but when you get older, you sort of start thinking about it more and you lose people in a serial manner. I've lost many friends and family in the last 10, 15 years. Uh, the Living Dying Project gives knowledge, wisdom, and pragmatic uh, reality to dealing with this for those that are losing and those that are passing and um, incredibly valuable to me and my first question to you instead of going into the history of the thing I mean people can just go to the website and find out about it and contact and all that let's not do that I have a question when I was a young man I never thought about death my father died when I was 21 and even then, I didn't really think about it. And I hadn't really started thinking about it until I started getting involved in Tibetan Buddhism and losing a lot of my friends. My question to you, Ramdev, is, is there a way without, you know, driving people crazy, particularly younger people, to start the process of understanding the passing of the body and the transmission of the consciousness at a much younger age? I'm not saying elementary school or anything like that, but for younger people, and many of our listeners are much younger than we are, is there a way of doing that that isn't being done that is kind and useful for their inevitable encounters with death? Do you believe there is? And if there is, how would, how would we do that? Well, that's a great that's a question. question. In a real way, the Living Dying Project isn't about dying. It's about healing. It's about wholeness. And my friend Stephen Levine wrote a book, Who Dies?, which is an interesting question. So when we're younger, there is a very strong tendency to identify very completely with the part of our being that dies, the body and the personality. Spiritual practice, one way of looking at it, is the process of changing our identification from body and personality to our true nature, to our soul nature, to 
Buddha nature, Christ consciousness, higher power, whatever you want to call that. Gradually letting go of identification with that which changes to that which does not change. So in each moment right now, there's things that are changing. There's the sound of my voice, the movement of my hand, the sensations in your body. All that is changing. At the same time, there's something that's not changing, which is consciousness meeting each arising experience. And as we begin to identify more with consciousness, which can be done in a devotional way, the way that Maharaji primarily taught, it can also be done in a more direct mind way, then uh, dying takes on a very different kind of coloration, if you will, in our minds. It isn't something that is the end, but it is consciousness moving on and doing the next thing. Now, when one is younger, there is certainly, with all the vitality and sexuality and interest in the world, there is a very real uh, direction toward, I love this world, I'm really involved in it. But at the same time, I think we're living in a, a, a very interesting time. The Chinese, of course, have a saying, uh, it's a curse to be living in an interesting time because you so get caught in the world. But if I were a younger person and I looked at what's happening to the environment, what's going on politically, what's uh, going on economically, all the what's happening to the migrants over in Eastern Europe and Northern Europe now, and in so many different ways, one can just extrapolate that the world is going in some very difficult directions. And if you really look at this, in fact, I know people come to my workshops and they are so distraught about what's happening to the environment that some people say, I, I can't almost bear it. So that if you're only identified with what's out there, and what's out there now is very, very uh, difficult and complex, and uh, the attempts to change things are often met with great frustration. If one can begin then to investigate how this suffering is arising, because I'm identified with what's changing, and that's going to die. Uh, and I think even younger people, our parents are dying, the planet is dying in a certain way, certain ways of being in the world are dying. Uh, is it possible then to take that as the inspiration, not to close the heart, but to open it more deeply. And as we open it more deeply, what we find is that which does not die. The love which does not die, the consciousness which does not die. Uh, at the same time, I would guess, I mean, when I was in my 20s and 30s, uh, before I got to India, and even after I got back, I was kind of a wild man. And I was like really in the world trying to, shake it up and I think that's the that's the job of young people uh, but at the same time uh, I've got a 13 year old son believe it or not and to me the hope of the world is the young people that if we extrapolate and I mean I knew people who were involved in the environmental movement uh, 10 20 years ago and few of them gave up because they thought it was hopeless, that we're beyond the tipping point in so many different directions. But I don't think that's taking into account 
the fact that all these children out there have so much wisdom and so much beauty that things can uh, possibly be pulled back from the brink in certain dimensions. Mm. What, but in terms of practicalities, I mean, what do you suggest or what can you suggest? You have some, let, let's just talk about people in their 20s and 30s or even early 40s. And, um, and that vibrancy and zest for life and the hormones are still operating, you know, well, shit, they're still operating for us, at the, even at this age. Maybe not quite the same, but I know that they're still pretty intense. So with uh, all of that said, what are some of even baby steps that one can do in their 20s who look at this and, and, and see what you just said? This is we are looking at a very difficult environment and, and projecting into the future. I mean, so many difficulties. Uh, look where you live in California. Uh, you don't have any water. I mean, let's start there. Uh, so as we project all of these difficulties out, there certainly is a need for, uh, for change. And, and as you say, that change, our hope is in young people and consciousness and their consciousness and so on. But in terms of uh, one of the biggest uh, issues, and, and what I think David was bringing up in his original question to you, is um, the difficulty of fear. In all I'm sorry, of the difficulty of fear in fear. all of its aspects. Fear of what, can, what is happening in this world in a worldly sense, and fear in a personal sense of our own uh, getting sick and dying and leaving and and as you say you know that uh attachment to personality and and body is you know very strong what are baby steps for people to do that you would suggest to anybody to uh um to be able to step outside of that fear circle <coughs> uh pardon my coughing there's so much smoke in the air here from all the fires <laughs> that I've, I've been coughing a bunch are lately. you kidding i'm not kidding Oh, I didn't know uh, that. People, are having, uh, people that have any lung issues are having trouble because of all the wildfires in California. Wow. So all fear at its root is fear of death. Because fear is where we're identified with that which is separate and is going to die. Hmm. Fear of death is exactly equal to lack of enlightenment the place where we're caught in separateness. So that one can take any fear, the fear, the, just as a slightly humorous example, the New York Times did a survey, what are you most afraid of? Number one was speaking in public, number three was dying. <laughs> and uh, that's maybe kind of funny, but the part of me that would be afraid of speaking in public is going to be afraid of dying. All our fears will be there as we're dying. And that fear of speaking in public is the place where I'm, I'm afraid that separate me is going to be embarrassed by the way you're perceiving me. Okay, so it is possible on the spiritual path to begin to look at how fear arises. Uh, my brother died of pancreatic cancer last Halloween. And uh, as you know, I work with dying people. So uh, cancer does not cause 
suffering. Resistance to cancer causes suffering. Dying does not cause suffering. Resistance to dying causes suffering. Two people can go to the dentist. I'm taking my son to the dentist today. He's not happy about that. Two people can go to the dentist. One of them says, that was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. The other has the same procedure and says that's not so bad because of their character structure. They're not so busy resisting. So is it possible, if you really want to get free, if you want to be more alive, if you want to be more fully in a vibrant way in the world, <coughs> excuse me, to begin to transmute our suffering into the inspiration to open our hearts more deeply. That when we see these very painful things in the world, I mean, these stories, what's happening to these migrants in Europe is, is just heart-wrenching. Or uh, any number, I mean, so many different stories. You, if your heart is really open and you, you hear those stories, it, it's, it's painful. So in that, in that moment where you're looking in the world and you're seeing what's going on, what is the response? Is it to pull back and say, I need to protect myself? Or on the other hand, is it to push things away and say, give me another couple of beers or let's turn on the television now? Or is it to become more compassionate? So that really the center of this spiritual path and this discussion right now about this question to me is about compassion, which means with passion. Suffering arises, there are three possibilities. Pushing it away, I don't want to feel that. Getting lost in it, oh my God, this is a catastrophe. And meeting it with an open heart. So that one can do this practice of going through life, what does my heart feel like? Right now, is my heart open and connected to the two of you guys? Or am I concerned about, do they like me? Am I clever enough today? Or, you know, what's going on? Uh, and just being on that edge, surfing that edge of again and again, bringing my heart to an openness with my circumstance. And what I found in my own personal practice, and that maybe that's a bit biased because of all this mathematical training, is that uh, I tend to have my energy go up in my head when anything difficult arises. And these Eastern practices that we learned in India and that so many people are interested in and are practicing are based on the assumption that you're grounded and centered, you're unneurotic, and you love your mommy and daddy. These practices were developed by and for Asian people a few thousand years ago who uh, walked around barefoot. They slept in their parents' bed. The Dalai Lama on his third visit to America said, now I'm beginning to understand it makes me very sad. You Americans don't like yourselves. So if we're beginning this whole, this whole spiritual practice or what can young people do? If you're beginning from the standpoint of being neurotic, of not being grounded, of not being in the lower part of your body, but up in your head about all these problems and what's going on, the heart then is going to be pretty unavailable, the heart of compassion. So I really encourage people to work with being grounded and centered. There are meditations on my website about doing that. Being grounded and centered as a way then of uh, creating a foundation for the heart to remain open. Most people you meet, and probably for the three of us, 
the heart remains open, and then somebody looks at you cross-eyed or says an unkind thing, yeah. and the heart heart closes immediately because there isn't that foundation that we need the environment to be supportive for us to trust that we can remain vulnerable through our hearts. Whereas martial arts are done from the belly, the hara, the dantian, the lower belly. And if you are have that autonomous, independent centeredness, then the heart can remain open. It doesn't depend on the environment being supportive. You can go into environmental work or political work or whatever kind of work you choose to do. And that can be your spiritual practice because you have this foundation. Wow. That's, you know, we've been doing this podcast for three years and we've done 127 of them, I think. And that is, and I don't want to sound too obsequious. That's just, that's, <laughs> Go ahead. That is just an amazing answer. And, you know, really, Roger, wouldn't you agree? I mean, mm -hmm. so much there to, to help rather than just being clever, as you said. It, this is helpful. As a matter of fact, I wanted to read, if you don't mind, Ramdev, the mission statement. I've never read a mission statement that was as poetic and as helpful as the one for your project. I just want to read it. Imagine facing death without fear. Imagine using a life-threatening illness as an opportunity for spiritual awakening. Imagine approaching the unknown with an open heart. We often resist change as a natural part of life. Strength and healing can be found in life's most difficult situations. The Living Dying Project offers compassionate support in the spirit of mutual exploration to those facing life-threatening illness. One of the reasons I read that out was because I did a film with Timothy Leary. I did the film with Timothy Leary in his last few months of life. And I remember the last thing he said to me, because uh, we were constantly in a dialogue about death, because his whole thing was my first taboo was drugs to deal with. My second was sex. My third and last is death. And my final question to Tim was, okay, could you just give us a sentence that could make this a bit less dark and a lot lot more sort of enjoyable and that's typical of a question that tim leary would relish and he said to me yeah aren't you excited about exploring something that's so unknown everything else we know about even the himalayas even this that the other we know nothing i'm so excited that's what he said and your word exploration in the mission statement reminded me of that that it was the first time anybody had ever said something to me personally which was not just positive or some kind of bromide about death, but it was actually saying, I welcome it. I want to see what it's about, even if I'm not me. And that really, that really struck me. And I wonder, in your work with the living and the dying, uh, is that perspective in any way useful? The most beautiful Americans, with very few exceptions that I've ever met, are people who are almost dead. <laughs> because they are letting go of all this identification with personality and the stuff I've got and, and how much money and all those kinds of things. And with the proper kind of support, with the proper kind of background, uh, people can approach death in a, in a wide open way. Uh, I don't do this work because I'm Mother Teresa in drag. I do it because it is such a privilege to be around somebody who is embarking on this potentially at least exciting journey. And 
certainly there are people that uh, are still very afraid of death. They're pushing it away at all costs. But uh, to me, the work isn't really about dying. It's about, it's about transformation of consciousness. And my very firm belief from personal experience is that the best spiritual practice for this unusual time in the 21st century is some combination of working with the dying, being having some intimate relationship with death, and an inner contemplative practice. Trungpa Rinpoche said that until you have an intimate relationship with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante. So you can meditate till your knees fall off and there are calluses on your butt. But if you don't really know that you could die at any minute, it's possible that you're just doing this as some self-improvement exercise, which is a big problem because there's no self to improve, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> um. From what you said before, it's something ringing in my head, the word resistance. That is really um, the big bugaboo in so many different aspects of our lives. And certainly, of course, it, it rears its head uh, most prominently when you are really sick. Um, when you're in a crisis situation or when you're dying. Resistance. And so the other word that comes in then is surrender. But uh, I, I want you to talk about surrender related to resistance uh, in its multifaceted way, not just from the, shall we say, bhakti yoga uh, concept which I think in, this, in the West gets uh, misinterpreted a lot. And uh, in fact, our good friend and uh, K.K. Shah has uh, talked to us a lot, and he's come to these retreats that we do with Ram Das out in Maui, and he's talked to us a lot about the true meaning of, of surrender. And, uh, but from, from the point of view, from the work that you do and so on, can you talk a little bit about the, that importance and uh, and its connection to uh, sort of an antidote to resistance. Well, yeah, there are. When I lead these groups that I lead, uh, and I talk about this healing paradigm, we can heal through the channel of the heart, the channel of the mind, the channel of the body. You were mentioning the channel of the heart of surrender, and I. I I do. Admit, I even have a hard time talking about Maharaji sometimes because people take the idea of the guru uh, in a in a very superficial, external way. They get, they feel jealous or they feel it's gauche or whatever it is that. I mean, I remember there was a story where Maharaji kicked us all out and uh, of the temple in Vrindavan, and then. Uh, somebody, I won't mention who it is, decided that she <laughs> knew better and was going to climb over the wall to get in. And, and Maharaji saw her coming over the wall and he turned to somebody and said, they don't understand, they think I'm just this body. So that the surrender 
whether it's a devotional surrender or a more, or a more uh, Buddhist kind of surrender is really to the same thing. It's to this quality of presence or aliveness that is in any moment. And Buddhism is based on this notion of the Four Noble Truths that uh, life is suffering and suffering comes because of resistance. Let go of resistance, no more suffering, and there's the Eightfold Path. That's the way to go beyond resistance. But uh, so many people kind of interpret Buddhism as pessimistic because life is suffering. But it really is an incredibly optimistic notion because the notion is that we don't have to fix or change or manipulate reality, but by just becoming aware of our resistance and surrendering then into the moment, what is revealed is our nature as wholeness. And there's the wonderful story of Ramdas coming to Maharaji and saying, Maharaji, I feel so impure. And Maharaji looking up Ramdas's sleeve and saying, I don't see any impurity. So that even though the personality, even though the body perceives itself as being imperfect and impure, who we are is pure consciousness. So uh, when we're embodied, when we're not dead or when we're not even approaching death in, a, in an obvious way, uh, let's just look at a metaphor that somebody has lost something in the dark. You've, you've dropped something on the ground, you can't find it, so you pick up a flashlight and you're looking around to try to find it. Now, usually we identify with, I'm the guy holding the flashlight. And sometimes we identify with what the flashlight is shining on, like anger, I'm angry. You identify with the object of awareness. But in fact, according to non-duality, Ramana Maharshi, Ramakrishna, Adyashanti, Eckhart Tolle, what we are is the light of the flashlight. So that the proper relationship with resistance will show us that we are the light of the flashlight. We're not this person who thinks that we are uh, so solid and caught in resistance. I remember uh, Roger Ebert, the film critic, was, was uh, being asked about how cancer had affected his life. He had a very difficult cancer. It ate away part of his face. He eventually died of it. And he said that uh, as I am typing the sentence, I don't know whether I will be alive when I type the period at the end of the sentence. So in Buddhism, there are these things called the four mind-turning truths that turn our mind toward working with resistance, towards freedom. And the first one is you're going to die, but you don't know when. Now, what could be more obvious intellectually? We all know that, but if you really, really knew that, that not just it might be tomorrow, but it might be this next moment, then how would it affect the way that the three of us and all the listeners were reacting to this moment? If you didn't know that you'd had how many more breaths left, uh, what's there to resist? I mean, it's just now is the time to be alive. And in fact, the second of these truths is life is precious. This moment is precious. This moment is the only one in which we can awaken. Mm, yeah. You, you know, last week on 60 Minutes, Anderson Cooper did a 20-minute section on mindfulness. 
Really? And, and I watched it, and it was excellent. And the reason it was excellent is because Anderson had never thought about this in his life and said, he started the segment by saying, you know, I got to say, I'm only thinking about what I just did and what I'm about to do. I'm never in the present. Never. And so um, John Cabot, um, who's a friend of Roger's, I guess. Uh, no. <laughs> I John Cabot? No, no. We, okay. We've talked about him, but no. Anyway, he led him through a three-day meditation, and they filmed him. And Anderson Cooper was incredibly um, agitated and had a very hard time. But at the end of it, he felt a tremendous peace and felt that he'd been changed. This is Anderson fucking Cooper on 60 Minutes. This is not, you know, in Shambhala Sun magazine. This is seen by 12 million people. Is there any downside, Ramdev, to the popularization of mindfulness? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I suppose there is. I mean, mindfulness is good. More mindfulness is better. But uh, at the same time, uh, I think there certainly is the possibility of getting caught in your notion of being a spiritual person and using that as an excuse for uh, getting away with things. Uh, it, it's a really tricky question. I mean, certainly being aware of what you're doing is all for the good. And yet there are pitfalls on the spiritual path. I don't know if we really need to go into that. But uh, almost any spiritual group you can look at there are some people who have fallen by the wayside. There are people that are caught in certain ways. So uh, there's no downside to mindfulness itself. But the problem is that the, the personality structure, as it's directing your spiritual practice, identifies certain parts of yourself as not open to mindfulness. Mm. For instance, there's something called the superego, which is the judge, the inner critic, that we interjected when we were very, very young. We were powerless, and the big people were saying, don't do this, and you try to pay attention. Mm -hmm. So as we're older then, this voice that says, uh, you're inadequate, you're not a very good meditator, you're not doing this very well, whatever, we think that's the voice of wisdom rather than something that we can be mindful of. And uh, I read a really interesting article in the New York Times about a year or two ago. I don't no, I forget the guy's name, but he interviewed Jack Cornfield and uh, Kathy Ingram and a whole bunch of people. And they were all saying that Jack said that even after being a Buddhist monk and really cultivating mindfulness in a very intensive way, that there were certain areas of his personality that had to do with relationship and work that mindfulness had not touched at all and that he needed to be in therapy and he's a PhD psychologist, in order to uncover some of these places that mindfulness was prevented from going into. So if one appreciates that mm. mindfulness for Westerners, I mean, it's going back to the thing that the Dalai Lama said, that we don't like ourselves. So if you really like yourself, if you're grounded and centered and unneurotic, mindfulness is really all you need. But if you have this really neurotic personality structure, 
and you say, let's just be mindful uh, of what's going on, and you start changing the identification from the personality structure to true nature, it's going to be very messy, and there's going to be all kinds of roadblocks and, and detours along the way. Mm. Yeah, and I think it goes back to uh, the uh, the aspect of um, developing open heart, which you talked about before, I think is uh, extraordinarily important. And I think, you know, there's a way in which Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism, is so crystalline, clear. The roadmap they have of consciousness is, uh, to me, it's unbeatable. I mean, it's just incredible. And uh, I think, though, that people in the West can easily get lost in that, uh, that crystalline clarity and uh, forget the heart place. And uh, that's why we're putting together a heart mind app. So you won't forget it, everybody out there. Uh, I want to I bring one other thing up. We're getting close to the end here of our time. It's about the edge of awakening and love and death. And uh, I'll just tell you my own little experience, which I've mentioned before on this podcast and previous podcasts. When my father was dying uh, and I was sitting with him, and it was actually, there was a moment when I was sitting with him uh, with another good friend of ours, actually, Dwarka Bonner. Um, and we were just meditating and got into an extraordinarily deep place in that moment with my father. I mean, he was not unconscious. He was conscious. You know, he wasn't, at that point, he wasn't talking anymore. Uh, and then it occurred to me after that moment that I had the same, The uh, I had, of course, uh, was working on Ramdas stuff for the foundation, and, and he mentioned this concept of the edge of awakening, that when you're with dying people, you're on the edge of awakening. And I had that experience in that moment. And then I remember, somehow, uh, my mind just took me back to when I first met Maharaji Nimkaroli Baba. I had that same experience, that vast spaciousness, timelessness and just complete open-heartedness and no resistance no nothing and uh and i thought wow imagine that experience when i was 24 or 5 years old with maharaji and full of life and but that experience that edge of awakening you know and then transfer that to being with my father this is just a few years ago, and having that exact same experience, it was actually mind-blowing to me. And and I know you've done stuff around love and death before, and, and some of it with Ram Dass. Can you talk a little bit about that uh, experience where uh, it's easy to say love and death, isn't that a wonderful concept where, you know, but uh, let's talk about its, its reality um, when you actually allow yourself to open up with another person in that situation or in, in a situation as I described with uh, Maharaji. 
Well, in Buddhism, the the nature of the heart is that the heart is truly empty. And even that story I told before about going to Dada's house and, and uh, not being able to feel Maharaji because I didn't feel all emotional, that might have even been a deeper love than I knew it was at the time. So, uh, Kala Rinpoche has this wonderful, wonderful quote where he says, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. Seeing this, we know that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. So this quality of being nothing uh, appears when we're dying, when we contact the guru. Uh, usually we're lost in, not that we're nothing, but we're something, that we're here in the world, we're identified with that which changes. Uh, in Buddhism, they say that there are, are three qualities of the open heart. One is that it's connected, one is that it's warm, and the last that it's spacious. And spacious or empty really means that it's not filled with notions of I, me, and mine. So that when you were with Maharaji, there was so much love that there wasn't Raghu loving Maharaji, there was just love. When you were there meditating at your father's bedside as at his approaching deathbed, if you will, uh, it wasn't even so much father and son. It was just, oh, that place. And unfortunately for most of us, it takes something as shocking as being with Maharaji or having your father die mm. to reach that depth of heart. But what, what I'm saying is that the fact that you have experienced that and I would guess that almost everybody listening to this podcast has experienced that place. Do we need to have an external stimulus to bring us back there? You can go to that place where you were when you were with Maharaji or when you were at your, your father's bedside. We can all do that right now. And if we know that we, we might die soon, we're much more likely yes. to say, okay, what else is there to do? I mean, that's, that's the place I want to be. What's more important than, than living in that place? What's more important than realizing that being nothing, we are truly everything? And that uh, it's not my consciousness, it's the consciousness. There's one consciousness. It's not David and Raghu and Ramdev have three separate uh, consciousness. It's the same consciousness. It's not just that we're connected, we're one. And in those moments of deep meditation or deep love or... Uh, being in some very intimate relationship with death, that truth is revealed. I, I like being around dying people because I figure if I do that enough, this stubborn quality to me that keeps being so attached to the other stuff will begin to be worn away the way water wears away a hard rock uh, over time. Mm. Yes, a lot of time. Yes. And that's something for, uh, I'm going to go back to David, your, your initial question about how do, uh, how do young people uh, grapple with this, this concept of you are going to die and dealing with all of that stuff um, is dealing with it uh, when you are strong and vibrant and 
the idea that you can, as Ramdev, Ramdev says, everyone has had some ineffable experience of some sort. It could have been through a psychedelic or just a moment with music or anything. David and I talk about that all the time. And with that in, ineffable moment, you have a base from which to trust that you can expand that. And it's, you know, it does take a little bit of practice. Practice makes perfect. That's one of our big sayings here on mind rolling. And, uh, and what you're talking about, Ramdev, is uh, so eminently uh, applicable to everybody, no matter what age, as soon as one realizes uh, in any way that uh, the depth of how we are connect connected at the heart with each other and uh, our true natures, that we have no choice but to just do it, to just do any kind of practice that, that's going to expand that place. So I think uh, it's terrific, uh, um, terrific advice. And by the way, everyone, go to livingdying.org correct, Ramdev? Living That's it. Org. Living we and tried to make that the go-to website uh, for people who want to find information about consciously and compassionately approaching suffering and dying and grieving. And there's uh, a tons of um, resources there, from books to uh, meditations Ramdev does. Uh, workshops and so on that you can participate in, online stuff. So livingdying.org, take advantage of it. And um, Could I say one last thing? Absolutely. I also do online workshops that are mentioned on the homepage where there's a, a pre-recorded part, but then there's online streaming, interactive stuff. Great. That happen. In fact, there's one happening uh, in a couple weeks. Okay. And, and they're free, I noticed. Which well, some of them are, at any rate. Some are, not this particular one. <laughs> oh, sorry <laughs> about that. Uh, but it, listen, uh, it's, you know what? We're going to start. Uh, Ramdev and I, uh, and I haven't even talked to David about this, but um, we're going to start doing stuff that we can present through MindPod Network, um, not just a podcast, but I think there's other things that we want to offer that Ramdev uh, has uh, as offerings that will really help and uh so look forward to hearing way more from ramdev dale Borglund. i look forward to it myself and we're we're thrilled it's really great uh, ramdev that we we're able to hang out like this and we're happy to have you and uh everybody out there tune in to mindpod network where you can get a lot more of just this kind of a podcast uh, from the likes of Ram Das and Krishna Das and Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, Lama Surya Das, Danny Goldberg, Chris Grasso. We've we've got quite a crew here, and uh, we shall see you next week. Thank you, Ramdev. Great Thank to you see so you. Much. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> <laughs>